In fact, the ability to step inside the umwelt bubble of another creature is not so much a newfound skill as it is a lost art. Successful hunting, it could be said, is an act of terminal empathy. The kill depends on how successfully a hunter inserts himself into the umwelt of his prey, even to the point of disguising himself as that animal and mimicking its behavior. It was our ancestor's skill at not only analyzing and imitating the nature of a given animal, but identifying with it that enabled them to flourish in dangerous environments, both physically and in hunting societies such as the Uruke and the Kung and the Haida or the Sioux. Animals were not merely food. They were seen as blood relatives, spiritual companions, hunting guides, and sources of power and connection to the surrounding world. The boundaries between the Umwelten of humans and animals were, of necessity, much less rigidly defined. Many residents of the Binkin Valley maintain these skills and relationships to this day. There are hunters there who speak with tigers and who can identify game by scent alone. In the predominantly Russian village of Yasnovi, a random winter scene in 2007 revealed a circle of men in forest green and camouflage, in the center of which a man charged and wheeled while holding a rack of elk antlers to his head. That quote is from the book The Tiger by John Valent. This was an excellent book. It had been on my shelf to read for quite a while, but the book really um, encompasses a lot of things. It talks about the history of Russia and the history of the far east of Russia and some of the Asian countries that border it. It talks about natural resources. It talks about sociology. It talks about human psychology, and then, of course, it talks about the tiger. And the story, the story is built around this tiger that is prowling around this village in the Russian Far East, and the people who live there, and how they interact with it, and how they, and how they view the tiger. And the most common note I had in, in my own um, do-it-yourself index is about empathy, because a lot of this book touches on the idea of empathy between humans and animals. And while at first it, it was a little little out there, it was a little uh, beyond what I understood or could accept, by the end of the book I really, I really was buying into this idea of connection and understanding between humans and animals. The way the people talk about the tiger in this book and, and throughout history and myths and lore and folk tales um, is really consistent. There's this, there's this um, agreement. There's this connection between humans and tigers. And, and part of the reason, one of the, one of the examples in the book is that the people believe that the tiger has such a big brain and it can think like humans and it can plan like humans and it can learn like humans. And so part of the connection is, is that. And, and so if you want to understand the tiger, you have to be empathetic towards it. You have to think like the tiger does. And ever since reading um, a couple books on negotiations, I, I've really honed in on this idea of empathy as being really important to understanding other people. In a recent podcast um, called How I Built This, Troy Carter was interviewed, and Carter was a manager for Eve, and then he was a manager for Lady Gaga, and he's made uh, many successful technology investments. But, but early in his career, Carter says that he was just coming up, he was learning the ropes in Philadelphia, and he really didn't know how to do anything. He, he remembers uh, getting getting on a tour bus. It was the first big tour uh, that he was part of as a manager, and, and the tour, then the bus driver goes, hey, where's the float? 
and and Carter doesn't he doesn't even know what float means so he gets off he, he tells the bus driver you know just a second he gets off the bus he calls a friend and he's like hey man what's what does float mean why does this bus driver ask for it and his friend goes on to tell him that, that float is the money for for gas and food and tolls and and it's the stuff that you have the it's the money you have to give the bus driver before you start off so Carter gets the money and he goes back and he gives it to the bus driver and so he's really a novice at this game of managing people he doesn't understand all of the rules but one thing he does excellently one of Carter's strengths is his empathy he calls this his West Philly spidey sense and it's this idea of understanding what other people want he says he would go into negotiations and it was really important to know who had a gun and who would who would draw a gun at you and he says that it was important to know what the other side wanted because often it wasn't conflicting between what management wanted or what a record label wanted compared to what the artist wanted and, and that was who who Carter was representing so empathy is is this really important skill if you want to get what you want it's this ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and fully understand it at first I thought about this as like a driver's ed situation where there's the person that you want to empathize with and they're like the student driver and then um, you are like the the supervisor the person who is sitting in the passenger seat and has you know a brake pedal down below so that you can you can slow down the vehicle when this student driver uh, starts going too fast or, or isn't paying attention to the road and I'm not sure if that's the best example of what it is but it, but it's the working model that I have like that's the kind of empathy you want you need to see things from their point of view you need to be invested in the outcome of the situation you need to be paying attention to what's going on around you so that you can understand how that person is thinking and feeling and acting so something I'm, I'm trying to do is build that empathy and it's it's really hard I try to interact with the adults in my life in an empathetic way and the children that are in my life in an empathetic way and it's taken a lot more work than I would have thought but this idea of uh, of empathy with animals that's explained in this book was a nice way to continue my thinking about that so if you haven't read the tiger a True Story of Vengeance and Survival by John Valent. Uh, it, it's highly recommended. One. There's a lot of questions about creativity and how to be creative and what systems for creativity are. And one thing that seems common to a lot of creative people is that they're paying attention and they find all of these interesting moments. They find all of these instances where they observe something and they think it's interesting or they think it's different because the thing that they have in their mind, their view of the world is different from that. One of the recent examples of this was when um, Haralabob, who's a uh, professional gambler, was on the Bill Simmons uh, podcast and they were talking about um, the growth of three-point shooting in the NBA and they were saying how some teams were doing it and they were talking about the teams that had recently had success that were big three-point shooters and one of those teams was the Los Angeles Lakers when Phil Jackson coached them and Jackson said that his team didn't shoot three-pointers especially corner three-pointers because they led to more fast break points so the basketball theory behind it was is that if, if your player that was shooting was so far to one end which is where the corner is for a corner three-pointer if he was so far to one end and he missed then he would have to run the entire length of the court to get back on on defense and the other team would have an advantage so 
Phil Jackson said that this is why we don't shoot corner threes, because our players would be out of position for transition defense. And so Harrell Bob heard that, and he thought, well, well, that's interesting. Um, corner threes are, are usually a really good shot. They're a high percentage shot. Um, but maybe Phil Jackson has a point. Maybe there's this transition thing we're not paying attention to. So Haralabob went back and he watched every corner three-pointer that year and he charted that along with all the other three-pointers taken and he realized that it didn't lead to more fast break points like Phil Jackson said. And this is a nice example of when we have a that's interesting moment. Like Haralabob heard Phil Jackson say this. He knew Phil Jackson's experience coaching and his success coaching. And he thought, I wonder if this is true or not. I wonder if this is a real thing. So he went and he investigated the data. And it turned out the data supported what Haralabob had been thinking. It turned out that corner threes weren't detrimental to a team. They were actually uh, really quite helpful. A second that's interesting moment that came up was reading this old Walter Isaacson uh, column in the New York Times about um, Albert Einstein. And, and this is what Isaacson wrote, quote, Einstein's first great thought experiment came when he was about 16. He had run away from his school in Germany, which he hated because it emphasized rote learning rather than visual imagination, and enrolled in a Swiss village school based on the educational philosophy of Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, who believed in encouraging students to visualize concepts. While there, Einstein tried to picture what it would be like to travel so fast that you caught up with a beam of light. If he wrote alongside it, he later wrote, quote, I should observe such a beam of light as an electromagnetic field at rest, end quote. In other words, the wave would seem stationary, but this was not possible according to Maxwell's equations, which described the motion and oscillation of electric magnetic fields. And, and here's the key part. The conflict between his thought experiment and Maxwell's equations caused Einstein, quote, psychic tension, end quote. He later recalled, and he wandered around nervously, his palms sweating, end quote. So what we have here is Einstein engaging in these, these visual thought experiments, which, which is the center of Isaacson's article. That's why Isaac, Isaacson is writing the article in the New York Times. And he visualizes it, but he's visualizing something that's different than what the, than what the established theory is. Einstein has a that's interesting moment. And so Einstein would go on and he would pick at this like it was like it was a festering scab. He would he would just pull with this string to see how everything unraveled. And that's the same thing that we, we saw with Haralabob. He has this that's interesting moment when this great basketball coach says, this is why we don't do something. And he looks at the data. He, he does more research, just like Einstein. And he finds out that that, that, that established theory um, is, is wrong. It's not actually true. It, it's something that may have been passed down but um, as, as lore. But it's, it's, it's not something that is an accurate description of, of the current situation. So anytime we have, and that's an interesting moment, or we see something and we think, mm, that's not how I see the world, that, that's a good sign, that's a good signal to maybe start digging around the data to see if maybe the way the world is, or the, or the theory about the world, isn't exactly how the world is. Two. I recently finished Brad Stone's book, The Upstarts, and, and while the, the book was fine, it wasn't nearly as good as Stone's earlier book, The Everything Store, and, and, and there's probably a good reason for that. The Upstarts is about Airbnb and Uber, whereas The Everything Store is about Amazon. And in these different companies, we can see really different results, even in currently and then looking back in the past. 
the upstarts really benefited from a lot of luck. Airbnb and Uber weren't the first ones in their market. They didn't have these grand plans to design ride-sharing or to rival the uh, hotel industry, but they, they just sort of ended up there. And if there's a lesson from the book, it's, it's not that you have to be smart or brilliant or have the best code or be the first one to the market. The real lesson from the book is that you have to be persistent and it takes a lot of work and there's a good chance that even if you do those two things, if you don't get lucky, you, you still won't succeed. For the first part, for, for persistence, uh, Paul Graham compared the Airbnb founders to cockroaches because he said there was nothing that was, that was going to kill them. And uh, Travis uh, Kalanick, the CEO of Uber, has this quote, quote, imagine hearing no a hundred times a day for six straight years, end quote. So you really have to be persistent with these ideas. And... Um, you have to survive for a long time just, just cracking away and cracking away and crack it, cracking away, knowing that, that there might be a chance you find a treasure and there might be a chance that, that you don't. And another part was the hard work that was involved. I, I look at technology companies and a lot of it, I, a lot of what I see, a lot of my impression is that there's someone who's coding this. And if you have someone who can, who can just type things into a keyboard, uh, you'll be okay. You'll you'll have you'll have someone who creates this product. But there's really a lot of elbow grease that are involved with these things. There's negotiations with investors. There's conversations with lawmakers. There's there's going out and helping helping the actual users, both Calicanic and then the Airbnb founders like Brian Chesky had to go out and they had to talk to people who were using their product. The famous Airbnb story is that uh, early on, they didn't have a lot of users, and Paul Graham tells them while they're at Y Combinator, he's like, hey, these pictures that are on the website look like crap. You need to go to New York City, and you need to get good pictures of the apartments. And so Chesky and the founders are like, but but that doesn't scale. And Paul Graham says something to the extent of, I don't give a shit. These pictures are really bad, and you need to fix this. And so this from this story comes the expression that you have to do things that don't scale. And Kalanick at Uber with the other uh, Uber engineers and executives would go out and they would give phones to drivers, like taxi drivers, and they would see how the app worked and, and whether or not it didn't work. And there was a lot of times that it didn't work, so they had to, they had to uh, make, make tweaks for it. But it, it was very little coding, very little building things on a computer. And maybe, maybe that's just not in the book because it's not fun to write about, but there was a lot of elbow grease that was in, involved in all of this. And then, and then the last part is luck. You, if, you, if, you, if you are persistent and you do a lot of work, you have to get lucky too. Um, Patrick Collison, who founded Stripe, isn't in this book, but he gave an interview where he says, you know, um, early on, we didn't know if we should be building Stripe. We didn't know if that was a service that, that people wanted. And, and after building it and doing some research, they found out that people really wanted it. It was a great service. And uh, Collison has a quote like, um, the, the pond we thought we were building for was actually an ocean. So it was a larger market than he thought. But he goes on and says, you know, in, in 2006, the Facebook company didn't know it should be building Facebook. There was a stable of products that they were building, and they didn't know which one they should get on and ride. And so it's really hard to figure out early on. It's impossible to figure out early on what's going to be a big success and what isn't. And the path of the successes and the path of the failures early on is almost identical. You have this person with an idea who builds a website, who finds a partner, who tries to get traction, who maybe gets some venture capital money, who expands, who has some growth, 
who has hockey stick growth, and, and so on. And so all of these beats are the same early on, whether our company is going to be a success or not. And at some point, it breaks away. At some point, there's this fork in the road where some companies go off to succeed and some companies go off on the path of failure. And in the moment, these decisions aren't clear. Founders, investors, managers, coders, developers, salespeople, nobody knows where that fork is. Nobody knows what leads to success and what doesn't. And, and that's why we call it luck. That's why luck is such an important component. Three. Mimicry is a great way to start something. There was a podcast between Jason Calacanis and Tim O'Reilly, and Calacanis said that he copied everything O'Reilly had done with his conferences early on because he, he didn't really know what to do. And so mimicry is like following a formula. It's like a philosophy. It's this structured system of, okay, I saw a person do A, and then I saw a person do B, and then I saw them do C, or I saw them do A and B and C, or I saw them do one and two and three, and I'm going to copy that. And that's a really good way to start. That's a really helpful way to start. There was an investing podcast, I can't recall which one, where, where the investor was saying that, yeah, we have a lot of models, and we have a lot of formulas, and we have this philosophy that gets us started. So in this wide scope of options, Whenever you want to start something, there's infinite choices. It's really hard to narrow things down. But if you have someone to copy, if you have a formula to follow, if you have a philosophy you believe in, those things are all really good starting points for something. Having structure early on is a great way to get something started or to narrow down the options so you can start. But as you start something and as you build as you use that formula, as you follow the black box instructions, you need to adapt to more dynamic thinking. You need to be more like Sherlock Holmes later in the process, where you start with a theory, you start with an idea that works, you start with the base rate, but then you go on to ask more questions. You go on to ask questions that feed more questions, and you get further away from the formula, and you get more into this adaptive question-asking mode. For example, the NFL draft uh, recently occurred, and the combine is this pre-draft camp where players are measured and weighed, they're giving tests, their jumping scores are recorded, their jumping distances are recorded, their, their times in the 40-yard dash are recorded. And so that's a very formulaic, structured process that helps you whittle down who you want to look at. But then once you find a player you might like, at a certain position you might want. Teams, teams will bring those players into their organization and interview them and, and have these own personal workouts. And Mike Lombardi talked about this, where when you bring in a player to the New England Patriots, he needs to have the right set of formal answers. He needs to pass all of those questions that the combine poses. But then when you bring them in, you need to ask, how is this player going to be? How are they going to succeed? in Tom Brady's shadow. So we get into this very specific question system where you ask this question about Tom Brady and based on the player's answer, you ask a follow-up question and you follow up to that. And you have this very messy system at the end, whereas in the beginning it was this very structured like spreadsheet 
where you had different scores for different attributes. And I think this is a really good way to go about making decisions, where you start with the base rate, or you start with the formula, or you start with the philosophy. And from there, you move on to something that's messier, something that is more relevant in time, something that is in the moment. Because all of our formulas, all of our philosophies, all of our structured things are based on what's worked in the past. But when we get to the present, when we get to the now, and we start to think about things, we know how, how things are different. And they may be really different, or they may not be different at all, but it's important to consider other things that are relevant in the moment. Until next week, I'm going to try to further develop my empathy, to try to think like these Russian hunters think about the tiger, and try to see things through the tiger's eyes, or see things through the other person's eyes. I'm going to pay attention for that interesting moment, and when I find one, I'm going to tug on the string of data to see what unravels. I'm going to remember that luck is really important, and for all the press and the ink that is devoted to the Silicon Valley startup culture, to remember that a lot of those people got really lucky. And the third thing I'm going to think about is building off of a good formula with my own adaptive questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.